0: The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at StoneOakBible.com. Well, and I want to invite you to grab your Bibles with me, and if you could open with me to the book of Amos this morning, Amos chapter three to be exact. And uh, as we're getting there, um, we are continuing our time in Amos this morning. And if you were with us last week, um, what we saw is Amos one and two kind of serve as an introduction for us. In a lot of ways, what they do is they set the stage for what's coming. And so, in Amos one and two, one and two, what we saw is a whole lot of judgments, <laughs> one by one, one by one. God is issuing and dealing out judgments. And what we saw—I had this map on the screen last week that showed what God was doing. You have Israel in the middle. What God was doing is one by one, he was, God was issuing out judgments to all of Israel's friends and neighbors if you looked at a map it was just interesting how god was kind of squeezing them there were seven nations that god talks about before he gets to israel but with these seven nations he just squeezes in around them and then after the seven he gets to he gets to uh israel and um if you remember kind of as we set the tone um the way we're thinking about amos and i think a beautiful way for us to think about this is like a parent who's disciplining their kid and like we talked about last time it's like a dad who calls little timmy over says little timmy come here we need to talk about what you did today and it's like little timmy turns to his his dad and says but dad what about my brothers and what about, my, what about them and what they were doing? Do you care? Do you see them? What about them? And what Amos is, Amos is, is like the dad who looks his children in the eyes, looks little Timmy right in the eyes, and says, little Timmy, I see them. I know what they did. And I'm going to take care of it. In fact, the first two chapters of Amos was God seeing it, calling it out, and saying he's th- going to take care of it. So, little Timmy, I see them. I see what your brothers are doing. And I'm going to take care of it. But now, little Timmy, I don't know a little Timmy, so I'm picking on that name. Now, little Timmy, let's talk about you. Let's talk about you. So, Chapter 1 and chapter 2 serve as an introduction for us because what God is doing is setting the stage through Amos for what he has next for Israel. And so we, we, we look at this, and, and church, just like Israel, I think, and we talked about this a little bit last week, but we can be so quick to shift the blame just like they were. Like, have you seen my brothers? Have you seen what those guys are doing? We can be really quick to shift the blame and, and so what Amos 1 and 2, it, it didn't just prepare Israel for what was coming. Church, in the same way, Amos 1 and 2 kind of prepare us for what is coming, that the Lord searches our hearts through this. And so uh, this morning, we get to chapter 3. And um, what we're going to do is we're going to spend our time in the first eight verses of chapter 3. So uh, Amos 3, 1 through 8. And what we're going to do is we're going to see three important messages that we're going to see in this text and what i'm going to try to do walk through this little by little and i'm going to take them in turn as they come in the text so we have three major points today we're going to walk through this text one through eight and kind of see them as we open it up together and so i want to start with amos 3 verse 1. amos 3 verse 1 says hear this word Pause there. That's our first command this morning. Hear. Hear this word. This is a call to attention, not deflection or denial or distraction. It's like, going back to our analogy, little Timmy, look at me in the eyes. Look at me in the eyes, son, daughter. Look me in the eyes. Listen to my voice. This is my word to you. It says, hear this word that the Lord has spoken this is a tough word, against you. You look at this and you think, okay, you start to sense the tone a little bit already and you think already, well, that surely must be a typo. Like that should read, hear this word that the Lord has spoken to you, right? God, Amos, (laughs) or maybe for you, but against you? Already you can can see and sense the tone. This is a rebuke. But this is when it's important for us to take all of this first verse in together. It says, hear the word of the Lord um, spoken against you. Then he says, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. I'm going to go a little further. Uh, First part of verse 2. You only... Have I known of all the families of the earth? Stop there. This is huge. And this is our first point. And it's a really important point as we get to the difficult things that we have ahead. The first point is, is, is God saying emphatically, you are my people. You are my people people. He draws them back to Egypt. He draws them back to this wonderful time in their history when God shows up and shows off against the most powerful nation in the known world and delivers them miraculously. He draws them back to that moment where God was faithful. And it's no coincidence here that God draws their attention back to the exodus when God showed up. When God showed up for his people This is my people, the ones that I brought out of Egypt. And it's not only that, but you also sense the uniqueness and the specialness. Look at the the language here. You only have I known. That's a specialness, a uniqueness. You only have I known. And and it's not only you only, but that word know. It's not just a know about. This implies relationship. There's a specialness and a uniqueness, a true relationship. And what God is saying, and I don't want you to miss this, you are my people. You alone have I known like this. You alone have I entered into a relationship with like this. You alone have I known. You have to start there. And um, in a very similar way, and church, I would argue even more so, That is true for us as the church today. What I mean by this is it's really easy to get all mad and bent out of shape with the crazy people out there. In our world that is chaotic and wild, with news feeds that you can't even believe anymore, they're just wild, and it's so easy to get kind of bent out of shape with all of that out there. But church, this is about us. When I say us, It's about his children, God's children, that he knows. Church, we are known by God. We are in a relationship with God through Christ. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. You alone has God known like this. You alone. God starts here. He starts with a proclamation that you are my people. You are my people. I loved you, saved you, freed you from Egypt, cared for you. I've known you. You are my people. This matters, and it matters for us today because our starting line matters. Um, I want to draw your attention. I brought this verse up, but I've warned you that I'm going to talk about this verse a lot uh, over the next couple months, but this is Hebrews 12. It says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For the people of Israel, they were God's people. Sons. They were the ones who God brought out of Egypt. They were the ones that God had a special relationship with. They were the ones that God knew. And because of that, they knew the faithfulness of God. I brought this up last time, but the end of this book, we're going to preach this book in light of the end of this book. and at the end of this book in Amos 9, I'm not going to, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. don't worry. Um, Amos ends in hope and restoration in hope and restoration. Amos ends with judgment giving way to restoration. Amos ends with this promise that the Messiah, that Christ will come. So as, as God's people, they were God's people, and through all of the judgment that's going to come, hear me, they are still God's people. They are still his children. Here in Amos, God is chastising them, disciplining them. But as we see in Amos 9, they are still his, and he still has a plan for them. Our starting line matters for us today as well church as as the church is the people of god we are his we have been bought with a price we are redeemed forgiven adopted we are justified we are being sanctified we are walking in the grace of our god we are his through jesus christ and like israel we have this special relationship with our god we are the ones that god knows and i got to tell you when god disciplines you i did not say if when god disciplines you we know it is his love that is on on demonstration for us we are facing that as his children it matters our starting line we are his children when we start from a place of belonging Hear me, the discipline of our God is an opportunity for our growth and sanctification, not for our shame. When we start with who we are, it's an opportunity for us to confess and repent because we know the end of the story and we know that our God, with our God, that all things work together for our good. That is our starting point. God first says, you are my people. But then he continues. And I wanted to spend a little bit of time on this because he turns the corner very quickly. Look at our next word in verse 2. Therefore. like You are my people. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. That one hurts. So... Therefore, meaning because you are my people, because I discipline those out of love, God says, I will punish you for your iniquities. So point one is you are my people, but point two is this is my judgment. You are my people, and this is my judgment for your sin. This is my judgment. Judgment. It's like the discipline of that father that we read about in Hebrews 12. God is disciplining his children. So I know this isn't the most popular statement, and I got to warn you, Amos won't be the most popular book to be preached today either, but um, there are consequences for our actions. So for Israel, God says, I will punish you, not because I have forgotten you, not because I'm cranky and in a bad mood today. And he says, I will punish you, not because I'm kicking you out of my family. He says, I will punish you for your iniquities, your sin, what you have done, and what you have left undone. It's that word against you. This is the word coming against you. It is against your wickedness. And so for any kind of woe is me, um, how could God do this to me? How did we deserve this? God says, "You are my people. You are my people, and this is my judgment against you." Those are not contradictory statements. "You are my people, and this is my word against you." In fact, the rest of Amos is going to spell out all of the things that God sees against them. Their wickedness, their sin. It's going to spell it out over the course of the next couple months. But this is God's word. You are my people, and this is God's judgment. And over the next several verses that we're going to look at today, Amos is going to make several cause and effect statements, and um, he's going to ask rhetorical questions, and each one of these have a clear cause and a clear effect. And the point he's making, we're going to get to more of this, but the point he is making is that the judgment, the disaster... The discipline has a clear cause. The cause is the Lord. The Lord did this. The Lord did this. God did this. This is his judgment for their sin. Now, um, I want to take a quick pause here because um, I think there is something here that we struggle with today. And I think there's a good reason that we struggle with this today. Today. But as I say all this, and as, I re- as I, we read Amos and we hear all this, like, judgment, um, there's a good chance that many of us hear this and read this and think, okay, that must be an Old Testament thing. That must be that Old Testament God thing. Because back then, he was just more cranky. Back then, he really didn't like sin at all. Now he's kind of... he's. he's his rough corners have been smoothed out a little bit. We wouldn't say these things, but practically. What do we do with, with this? Because it's almost like we believe that God cared more about their sin yesterday than he does our sin today. And in and, and Amos, God brings the heat and calls out sin directly, and he He issues out consequences for sin. And so we read this, and, and we think, well, this must be an old testament thing must be an old testament thing um because here's the thing we all sin right and god's not smiting us right this must be one of those old testament things i hear what you're saying about amos and israel praise god that's the old testament we're new covenant people new covenant people so we don't have to worry about anything like that amen Uh, I want to take a moment to just speak to this directly, and I don't do this lightly. Um, I strongly believe, in fact, that the question I just asked is one of the main reasons why we as New Covenant, New Testament church need to read the Old Testament, Um, that we should read Amos. Here, Here it is. Our God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. Our God is just as holy, just as righteous, just as perfect as he was back then. He does not change. Our God feels the same today about your sin as the sin you're about to read in, in Amos. Our God does not change. The wages of sin is still death. Sin still separates us from our God. Those are New Testament. Our God does not change. So brothers and sisters, your God feels the same about your sin as he did about the sin of the people of Israel in this, this letter it is just as deadly. The consequences are just as dire, just as big. And wait to hear me. What I'm about to say might be the most important thing that we can grasp and understand as we walk through Amos over the next couple months. God's grace is not cheap. God's grace is not cheap. God's grace is costly. Now, um, one of my favorite heroes of the faith of all time articulated this really well. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I think we would all benefit just reading a little Bonhoeffer every morning, right? Um, Incredible, but he he articulated this really well. And what he, I'm going to show you a quote here in a second. But what he does is he identifies a problem that he sees in the modern church of his time. And what's crazy is nearly a half century later, we see the same thing in the modern church today. I want to read this because he says it so good. Um, He says this, Grace, this is his assessment of the church, Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price. Grace without cost. He continues. The essence of grace, we suppose is that the account has been paid in advance, and because it's been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. What would grace be if it were not cheap? And then, oh, church, listen to this. He defines cheap grace now Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution that's the forgiveness and cleansing from sin. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. I, that's, that's good. In a word, in a world of cheap grace, where grace is cheap, reading Amos and preaching Amos is a complete waste of our time. If grace were cheap, reading Amos is a complete waste of our time, because if sin is nothing, then go on and keep sinning, that grace may abound. But church, the gospel is so much better than this cheap grace. The gospel is about costly grace. A costly grace. And so, final quote here, as he finishes this quote, I paused him right in the middle of his thought here. Listen to this. Bonhoeffer goes on to say this. This grace is costly because it calls us to follow and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ it is costly because it cost a man his life it is grace because it gives a man the only true life it is costly because it condemns sin it is grace because it justifies the sinner above all it is costly because it costs god the life of his son and what has cost god Much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Preach it. Preach it. For so many of us, I believe, just culturally, that we've gotten kind of used to the idea of cheap grace. Um, But here's the thing. When sin is not costly, grace is cheap. When sin is not costly, grace is cheap. And God's word reminds us in Amos, grace is not cheap because sin is not cheap. God judges sin then, and he judges sin today. And as I say this, hear me. I'm here preaching Amos I'm not preaching this as some hellfire and brimstone, like, ah, right? I'm not doing that. Um, I am preaching the fullness of God's word against sin so that you and I can know and understand the fullness of God's grace through Jesus Christ. So that we can know him. Because when we downplay sin, we belittle the cross and make grace cheap. And Amos doesn't let us downplay sin the good news shines when we understand the darkness of the bad news. The light of the gospel shines bright against the darkness of sin. And so church, please don't hear me wrong here. I pray that through this time that you and I will understand the weight of, the, the, the grossness of, and the cost of the sin in your life. And I pray and I hope that through this time, your own sin will upset your stomach to the glory of God. So that, not so that we can wallow, by the way, in some like, woe is me, I'm hopeless. And not so that you can question if you're loved, or if you're still a son and a daughter of God. But that we would better understand the weight of our sin, so that we can better understand and know the fullness of God's grace that abounds all the more. This is huge. Your sin is greater than you think. And the gospel is better than you think. Your sin is more gross and horrid than you can possibly think. But the grace of Jesus abounds all the more. And The more we understand this, the more we, we understand grace. Costly grace reminds us at, that the full wrath of God for your sin was placed on Jesus Christ. And he bore all of it on his shoulders. We can't make light of the sin that took Jesus' life, that he put on his shoulders as he died for his people. So just like the people of Israel, God says, you are my people, there is a judgment for sin. Sin is not cheap, sin is costly, and Jesus paid it all. It's not cheap, it's costly, Jesus paid it all. And this means, church, that grace is not cheap, grace is costly. And the gospel is about the, the costly grace of God being poured out, It is by grace you have been saved. Our God does not change. It's only by the costly grace of God through Jesus Christ that we live, that we move. And so, like we did this morning, as we confess sin, as we come with with our sin, we know he is faithful and just to forgive. And when we are disciplined by our God, we know that we are disciplined as his sons and as his daughters. Like Amos, God will discipline you as a son or daughter. Like Amos, God will pour out his judgment on sin. But never forget, just like Amos, he will never let us go. It ends in restoration, and we walk in the restoration of Christ today. We walk in this. He is faithful to complete what he has started, church. So God has said, point number one, you are my people. God has said, point number two, This is my judgment. And third, point number three, he is my prophet. This is where we get into all of these cause and effect rhetorical statements that he's about to make. So as you look at our text, um, rhetorical questions have an implied answer, and just by asking them, they make a point. So here, what we see, we see Amos is making a point through these questions, and they're each cause and effect questions. So verse three, do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Implied answer, of course not. Uh, verse 4, does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? No. Does a young lion cry out from his den if he um, has taken nothing? Does a bird fall on a snare on the earth when there is no trap? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? No, no, no. Like, I'm not really good at snaring birds and trapping birds, but the way it's written, I assume No. No. The the implied answer is no with each of these. But more than that, each of these point to cause and effect. Let me give you just a couple examples. Verse 5, does a bird call in a snare, effect, without a trap, cause? Verse 4, does a lion call out from the den, effect, if he has taken nothing, cause, cause and effect, effect and cause. And it's with this rhythm that now God gets to his point. Verse 6, verse 6. Is a trumpet blown in the city? Cause. And the people are not afraid? Effect. Does disaster come to a city? Effect. Unless the Lord has done it? Cause. And from that, verse 7, here's where he gets to his point. Verses 7 and 8, starting in 7 For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. Meaning, Amos is God's chosen man, his prophet, to deliver this message. And now he brings one last rhetorical cause and effect question, verse 8. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Again, the lion has roared, cause, who will not fear, effect. The Lord has spoken, cause, who can but prophesy, effect. So in this, God's speaking is compared to a lion roaring, and Amos' prophesying is compared to that fear of the lion as it roars. You see that? It's cause and effect. In other words, Amos, the prophet of God, has no choice but to prophesy. He has no choice as, as just simple cause and effect. Just as a lion roars and you get scared, God speaks and Amos opens his mouth. Cause, effect. He is my prophet. And why do you think this matters so much? Last week, we, we talked a little bit about the fact that Amos is this outsider prophet. If you think about it like this, um, you have Israel, and then you have Amos, who's not even from Israel. He's from the southern kingdom. So you have this outsider prophet who is delivering this really difficult news, and ultimately, why would Israel need to listen to this dude? Right? Why would, he need to listen? Why would they need to listen to him? And, and i got to say, ultimately cat out of the back here, Israel didn't listen. Israel did not listen to the words that we are going to spend our time with this, this, uh, this fall. Uh, in fact, just to you know, show you where this heads, 2 Chronicles 36, 15-16, uh, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, like Amos the prophet, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But here's the thing. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his word and scoffing at his prophets, Amos, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people and th- until there was no remedy. Amos delivered the message to God of God to God's people, and they ignored him. That's what ultimately happened here. And so at the start of this letter, God is, is asking simple rhetoric questions that, that, will, that are bringing absolute clarity on, on these three things right here. God says, You are my people, my children. You're wicked, but you're my people, my children. Second thing is that the judgment is coming, and it's my judgment, and the third is that Amos is my prophet who has no choice to tell you what I am telling him to say, and as much as you do not like his message, and as much as you might not care for him as the outsider, you are my people, this is my judgment, and Amos is my prophet to bring to you this message. This text is both about the message and the messenger, both are from God, and both are really difficult for Israel to take. Now I want to ask you, um, has God ever delivered to you a difficult message? This isn't like open mic time, so don't worry, I'm not going to call on you and have you. Has God ever delivered to you a difficult message? Let me push this one step further. Has God ever delivered you a difficult message through a difficult messenger? That's even harder. Um, through this unlikely or difficult messenger. You don't have to raise your hand, but, but if that's ever happened, I, I would bet that there is a temptation to try to discredit that message because you don't care for the messenger. Because of your feelings about the messenger, we're going to get real here. Um, um, For some of you, depending on your background, if you were being honest this morning and just speaking your piece, um, for many of you, I would guess that based on your background, whatever you've gone through with the church or with uh, um, leaders in the church, you might be here and maybe that's exactly how you feel about me about pastors, and about churches. We can be honest about that here. Don't make eye contact with me. Um, and maybe you hear all of this, and maybe you've heard sermons and uh, heard the word where, where, where um, you say, sure, I mean, that, that resonates with me. I, I feel convicted. I, I, I feel that, but I just don't know about the church. And... Um, I don't really trust pastors, and uh, I've been hurt, and I don't really trust organized religion. I've seen some hypocrisy, whatever it is. I know that many of us have been there. Whatever it is, uh, I want you to know that so many of us can relate to that and have been there, including me. And, and I am sorry for the hurt that you walk in the room with when it comes to church and pastor. But like the people of Israel and Amos, church, this morning God has a message to us. In many ways, God has a message, as I'll use the words of the text, against us, uh, from his word. It's a message with hope, but it is a convicting message. And unlike the people of Israel, my prayer is that we would be quick to hear and quick to listen that we would be quick to come to our God with our sin and repent. Um, listen, as I thought about this a lot this week, and I've been praying for this time, I have honestly felt like I can relate to Amos in a lot of ways. Not that I am a prophet. Ah, don't, don't do that. Um, not that I am a prophet like him. Um, I'm also not an outsider like he was. I was I'm from San Antonio. Um, I do think I'm pretty unlikely like he was, but um, that's not what I'm talking about, about either. What I mean is, is when I say I can relate to Amos, listen, um, for us today in 2022 as a culture, listen, me or any preacher up here behind this, holding this and, and preaching um, scripture, listen, That is just as unlikely as Amos was to the people of Israel. That is just unlikely. That is just as unpopular as Amos was for Israel all those years ago. Because church as a whole, we live in a world of relativism. We live in a world that what is right for you is right for you. What's wrong for you is wrong for you. And we are our own moral barometers. And we, we struggle even to call sin, sin because it's kind of meh, and, and it's uncomfortable, and, and, and we just feel icky with telling someone else that there's absolutes because that assumes absolutes, and we don't, we're not sure about that. You know what I mean? And um, when there's no kind of agreed-upon absolute morality, instead we have this icky moral ambiguity that we all live with, and, and what I mean when I say that I feel, um, I feel like Amos is standing up here and preaching this and saying that God has his word, and it's absolutely true. And when God's word, Lord help us, when it calls out our sin in a way that makes us uncomfortable... How foreign and unlikely is that? And it's not just me. It's any preacher. It's any... It's any I mean, preachers have lost credibility in a, in a lot of ways. But, but it's not just preachers. It's absolute truth. And so in moral ambiguity, what is right and what is wrong is up to the judgment of the individual. It's certainly not about some preacher. It's certainly not about the absolute truth of the Word of God not some ancient book or scripture. So as we walk through Amos, through scripture, through our preaching here, we're going to see God is giving an absolute judgment for our sin. And if we're honest, even that sounds so foreign to our ears. It's, It's like I'm preaching a dead language. But hear me, church, collectively, I want to finish with this. Collectively, I want us to push against that temptation this morning. See, where, are in a world where you and I are, are highly individualistic and where you're used to being your ultimate authority and your feelings and impulses are king and you tell you what's right and wrong. Through Amos, you and I are going to hear a really tough message from the Word of God and, and from a really unlikely messenger. And I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about this. We're going to hear this unlikely, this tough message from the Word of God. And, and so this message is, is external. It's not internal. It, this message is old and ancient and eternal and timeless. It's not new or progressive. This It's the timeless truth of the Word of God. And, and it's going to meet us right where we are. And... Um, it's, it's been said, like, like I said last week, it's like God is saying, look, I see all of them out there, all of those heathens. I've got them. I'm sovereign. I'm just. I've got it all in my hands. That's Amos 1 and 2. But through this letter now, God is holding us, looking at us and saying, look into my eyes, hear my word. Let's talk about you. Where there is sin in the camp, Sin in your heart, your life. I want to talk about that. I want to deal with that because my wrath is and will be poured out on sin. Church, I do not change. I discipline those that I love. God is our good and perfect father. For ancient Israel, Amos was the man that God chose. He was the man God chose to deliver this really difficult message. And in what he says he says to them you are my people this is my judgment and amos is my prophet and for us today as the church as his people our message is very similar to that god's word says you are my people my church my sons my daughters this is my judgment my message there is sin in the camp there is sin in lives and where there is sin in lives and hearts i want to deal with that i want to i want to deal with that because Grace is not cheap. God wants us to bring our sin before him so that we can know and understand the fullness of his grace that is costly. You are my church. This is my message. And church, lastly, this is my messenger, my word. This is my messenger, my word. And so here is the question for us. Will we open our ears to hear? Will we listen in many ways, like, like last week, this text is preparing us for what is coming. Will we listen? See, church, in 750 B.C., the people of Israel did not listen. Will we listen? Will we hear? What will we do? Last week, I, I said that through this time, our prayer is going to be, Holy Spirit, would you search our hearts? And my prayer is that we would have soft hearts this morning, and that we would pray this prayer, the prayer of David in Psalm 139 that says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Church, we'll pick up here next week. I want to invite you. Join us in this journey, and also if you want to read ahead, I won't hold it against you. And I believe God has something for us in this time.